Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And we pray that in attending to your good voice, that we might be shaped and molded to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So again, if you're joining with us for the first time, and I know some of you are, and I'm so glad that you're here. And if you are new, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Please come up and say hello, or uh, maybe find me over at the information table. I'd love to get to know you. But we have been in a series over the last couple of weeks called A City on a Hill. And what that is, is it's drawing upon a metaphor that Jesus gave us to capture what is the mission of the church. Jesus says the mission of the church is to be the light in this world. It is to be a city on a hill. And so we've been asking, what does that look like practically for us as a church family? What would it look like for us to embody together this mission that Jesus has given us? And uh, I put together a little uh, diagram just to kind of like capture what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. And so one way in which we can be a city on a hill, we looked at a couple weeks ago, is through, first, what we do. It is by being agents of the kingdom. It is by our works of justice and mercy, bearing witness to God's goodness. That is one way in which we bear witness. That is one way in which we demonstrate the light to the world. It is through what we do. But another way in which we bear witness to Christ, if you can see this on the uh, screens uh, around you, by the way, triangles are the perfect way to illustrate almost any Christian truth. That's because it's three-sided and we're Trinitarian. But we bear witness to Jesus not only through what we do, through our deeds of justice and mercy in the world, but also through who we are. And we looked at that last week. We talked together about the kind of community that in their life together bears witness to the saving and healing power of Jesus. Well, today what we're going to talk about is how we bear witness to Jesus, not only through what we do or through, we, through uh, who we are, but we, were, we bear witness to Jesus through what we say. Uh, we are not only agents of the kingdom and a community of the kingdom, we are also messengers of the kingdom. And so we're going to talk together about what it looks like to bear witness to Jesus in our words. And to do that, I want to draw your attention to the story of, of, of a man who bore witness to Jesus to an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. And in some ways, uh, I view this as a model of, of what it looks like really to be a messenger of the kingdom, to be those who share with others the good news about the healing power and the saving love of Jesus. And so let's look together at this story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, the story, again, it picks up in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. 
And he was returning and he was seated in his chariot and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And so this story narrates the encounter of one of the great evangelists, one of the great witnesses in the church called Philip and his encounter with this man who is called an Ethiopian eunuch. And so let's just talk a little bit about this character. Uh, The text says that he was an Ethiopian. Now, in the imagination of the Greeks and Romans, uh, Ethiopia was at the very fringes of civilization. It was at the very boundary of the known world. Homer said, quote, that it was at the world's end. And it's interesting, as the gospel goes out, because at this point in the, in the book of Acts, uh, the author is tracking the spread of the gospel first through Jerusalem, and then through Judea, and then Samaria, and then ultimately through to the ends of the earth. And at this point in the book of Acts, the gospel has gone to Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria. And now at this point, in Acts chapter 8, it's starting to go out to the ends of the earth. And let's note, when it travels to the ends of the earth, it doesn't simply move just beyond the boundary of Judea and Samaria. No, it, it, it goes all the way to what would be the very fringes kind of very the edge of civilization to this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, it says that he was not only an Ethiopian, but he was also a eunuch. Now, uh, and it's kind of a, of a complex picture because he was also a court official, it says, of Candace, and he was in charge of Candace's treasure. And so he was something of the CFO of Ethiopia, and he's in charge of Candace's treasure. And so he has some power and authority. He's got some access to wealth. And so on the one hand, he has got some power and authority. But on the other hand, it says that he's a eunuch. Now, for years, when I heard talk about eunuchs in the Bible, I thought that what it referred to uh, was simply a, a person who was single and chose to be celibate. Uh, But it turns out that in the ancient world, uh, a eunuch was not simply somebody who was single and celibate, but they were somebody who was castrated and maybe even dismembered. You see, it was very common in the royal courts for servants that showed promise that they wanted to groom for leadership in the courts to have those young servants at the age of 11 or 12 castrated and sometimes dismembered Why? Well, because it would mess up their hormones and they would oftentimes develop smooth skin and a high voice and they would become more effeminate. There would be no facial hair. They would be the closest thing to a transgender person in the ancient world. And they did that because this would be a high court official who would have some access to the king's harem and the king didn't want any competition for his harem. And so... This was a brutal culture and a brutal world, you know, and they would do stuff like this. Now, there was a stigma attached to being a a eunuch in ancient societies. You know, we live in a highly individualistic society, but in the ancient world, they were much more communal, and your family was everything. You lived on through your children, through your heirs, through your family name. And so to have children meant to have a future, Uh, but eunuchs couldn't do any of that. 
And they were looked down upon, and especially within the Jewish religious world, eunuchs were looked down upon. Uh, one writer in the first century, whose name was Josephus, put it like this. He said, let those who have made themselves eunuchs be held in detestation. He goes on, avoid conversation with any who have deprived themselves of their manhood. Let such be driven away as if they had killed their children. So do you see that in the religious communities, uh, these eunuchs were not looked upon very favorably. And so let's note well that as the gospel goes out now for the very first time, note who it goes to. It's going out now beyond Judea and Samaria. Who does it go to? It doesn't just go out, just, just beyond. It goes all the way to the very edge of the known world. And it goes to somebody who is, who's, who's on the edge of what's considered acceptable society for religious people. And this is who the gospel goes to. Now, why is this man traveling from Ethiopia all the way up to Jerusalem? Well, um, it's interesting to note, if you look on the screens, you can see this is, a, um, this is from Google Maps. And according to Google Maps, it is about a 2,300-mile journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Now, how is this man taking this journey? He's taking it in a chariot. Has anybody here ever ridden in a horse and buggy before? You ever had the experience, you know, you're at Knott's Berry Farm, you know, they have the, like the horse and buggy thing. As a kid, I always wanted to do that, but it always cost extra money. And so my parents never let me do it. Mom and dad are watching right now. Why didn't you let me do it? But I always thought it'd be fun, but I, I'm almost certain that it would be fun for about 15 minutes. But this guy's on a 2,000-mile journey in a horse and buggy, as it were, in a chariot. And, and he's crossing vast expanse of barren desert, full of risk and sandstorms and bandits. And why on earth would anybody take this kind of a journey across a vast barren desert at great risk to their own life. Well, according to the text, he's not coming to Jerusalem on business and he's not going there because Candace made him go. He's going there, the text says, to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, why would a guy who's a foreigner like this, who's from a far off land travel all of the way, all of this way to worship in the temple of Jerusalem? And the answer has to be that this man was spiritually thirsty. I mean, why else would you do this unless you were spiritually desperate, if you were spiritually hungry? And, you know, this man, he has, he has position and authority, but it's not satisfied his spiritual thirst. And he has wealth, but it's not satisfied his spiritual thirst. And he knows some things. He's obviously skilled. I mean, he's moved up in his profession, and yet it's not satisfied his spiritual thirst. And there's, there's other religions in Ethiopia. I mean, there are lots of religious options, but none of it has satisfied his, his spiritual thirst. And so he takes this long journey across a barren desert at great risk to his life to worship at the Jerusalem temple. But when he arrives at the temple, it's something of a minor tragedy. 
because he gets there and he learns that as an Ethiopian eunuch, he's not allowed to go into the temple. The religious community has excluded him and his presence from coming into worship at the temple. The book of Deuteronomy puts it like this. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That's not one of those calendar verses you read very often. You're not going to put that on mugs. One of these days, I'm going to create my own calendar. But listen, listen, why, why would they exclude somebody like this from worship? In ancient Israel, God's blessing on his people was seen in the fact that they would be fruitful and multiply. They cherished, they, they valued very highly the ability to reproduce and to create new families because they viewed that as being an expression of God's blessing on the nation. And, and so there were, there were things, you know, that, that the children of Israel believed would would prevent you from being able to go and worship the God of Israel. You see, they, they believed something that most Americans haven't really grasped. God is holy. And you can't just saunter into his presence at any old time. No, this God is holy. And, and because of that, there were th certain things that could exclude you from entering into his presence temporarily. And, and so, for example, if there... Uh, if you had touched a dead body or uh, you had a skin disease or you had mold growing in your house, you could be temporarily excluded from entering into the presence of God in the temple. But there were some things that would exclude you permanently from entering God's presence. And one of those things was if you were a eunuch. And so here is this man, it's just, it's tragic he, he's desperate. He's driven to go do, he's like, something's going on. He's like, I, I need something in my life. And, and I, need, I, I need some spiritual connection. I need some divine encounter to, 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 to fix what's going on deep down inside. And he probably heard maybe, maybe through uh, some Jews that had maybe been scattered throughout that part of the world and had talked about the God of Israel and the one true God and his temple and the fact that this God would actually meet with his people. And, and he thought, I have to go there. I have to go meet this God. And he gets there and he's, excluded, he can't go in to worship. Now, all was not lost because while he was in Jerusalem, he managed to pick up a copy of the ancient scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And as he, he, he no doubt is depressed, and in my imagination, he, he, he's just overwhelmed with sorrow and he gets in his chariot to take the long 2,000 mile journey back home and he's there and he's just pouring over the prophet Isaiah and maybe he's asking these questions God do you care 
God, have you excluded me from a relationship with you? God, it seems like everybody around me has, has, has told me I have no future. God, it, women don't want me. Nobody wants me. Am I excluded? Would you want me? And he's pouring over the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And what is he reading in Isaiah? Well, Luke, the author of this, this text, tells us, look what it says in verse 32. Now, the passage of scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. This is where he was reading. It's from Isaiah 54. Now, if you're a Christian and you, you see this, you think, oh, how serendipitous. This is one of the clearest pointers in the entire Old Testament to the person Jesus. How, how, how serendipitous that he was reading this text in this moment. But I think there's a reason why he was hanging out in this part of Isaiah. And it's because just a few paragraphs further beyond this, there's one of the only sections in the entire Old Testament that makes a promise to foreign eunuchs. And we heard it, it's Isaiah 56, it says this, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. He says, let no foreigner say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. He's thinking, God has promised to eunuchs like me a place in the temple? He says, I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name forever. And he reads this and he's wondering how, but how can I be? I was excluded, I was left out. And then in Isaiah 53, he reads about another who is excluded and cut off another who seemed to be rejected from the community of his people. And he's wondering, who is this person? And as he's sitting in his chariot, wondering, and he starts, you know, his journey back, all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he looks over, and there's a Jewish man running next to the chariot. And he says, pardon me, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> and and the, the man who's running there is named Philip. Now, why is Philip running next to the chariot? Well, look at verse 26. Because an angel of the Lord said, arise and go. And so Philip arose and went. And then in verse 29, the spirit of the Lord said, go over and join that chariot. And so Philip went over and joined the chariot. Why is Philip joining the chariot? It wasn't by coincidence. It wasn't by chance. He's there because God in his love sent him to the eunuch. And the eunuch looks over and he says, well, who am I reading about here? And Philip gets up and he hops into the chariot. And it says in verse 35 that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, 
he told him the good news about Jesus. In my imagination, Philip told him all about this one who was excluded and cut off. He told him how God himself entered into the world and became one of his people in Jesus. But he didn't just become one of the elite, one of the high status, high class, impressive ones. He became a servant of all. And he ultimately was rejected and cut off by his people. He was crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem. He was excluded. And Philip said, God came among you and he was cut off and he was excluded so that everyone who has been cut off and kicked out and excluded can be brought in and can by God's love be included and can be made a son or daughter of God. And the eunuch hears this good news and he says, It says, and they were going along and he says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? In the ancient world, baptism was a sign. It was a symbol of inclusion. It was a way to publicly say, you are a part of this family. And this man is wondering, like, nobody wants me. The the temple excluded me. And he hears this good news about how God in Christ was cut off and excluded so that now he can be brought in and included. And he says to Philip, what would prevent me from from getting in on this action? What would prevent me from being included into the family? And do you hear what he's asking? Philip, I've permanently altered my body. Can I still be brought in? Do I need to get my sexuality figured out before I can get in? Do do I need, what do I need to get in? Do I need to do something? Do I need to become more religious and more moral and more ethical and better in order to climb my way up and get in? And Philip says, no, you can be washed. You can be clean. You can be included in this family through Jesus. And look what it says. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. You bet he did. Now I wanna just stand back and just note three brief things that we learned from this story about our call, our role to, as a community to be those who bear witness to the good news of Jesus. Number one, this story is teaching us something. It is making a claim for us about, number one, the mission of God. And here's what it's telling us. You know, on one read, this looks like a story about a man who is passionately searching for God. But you know, when you get down into the layers, what you realize is that this story is not first and foremost about a man's search for God. This story first and foremost is about God's passionate search for a lost, broken man. Listen, long before, long before 
we ever came on the scene, God has been on mission in this world. You know, the mission of God does not originate with the church. The church originates with the mission of God. We have been called into being because there is a God on mission in this world and he invites us to join him. God is on mission. And, and one of the things that we have got to embrace, that we have got to believe from this story is that God is, in, is at work in people's lives all around us every day. And sometimes we, we wonder, you know, oh, that person seems too far from God. That person doesn't seem like the right type of person that would want to hear about Jesus. How do you know that? Were you the right type of person? Like, think about your own story. How did you wind up here on a Saturday evening or watching an online service on your couch? It wasn't by your own initiative. Something outside of you began to work and work inside of you. And that's how you ended up where you're at. And what we have to embrace is that God is at work in people's lives all around us. I read a story about a missionary who was in, his, in, who was in an Islamic country where it was illegal to preach the gospel. And this man was going from village to village telling people about Jesus. And at one point he had to cross 100 miles through the desert to go from one village all the way to another village. And as he was traversing this desert in his car with his wife, uh, they saw that they were running out of gas and they had to stop uh, at a gas station. And it was dark and they're basically in the middle of nowhere. And he said he got out to pump the gas and there was this very, very scary looking man in the corner who was smoking a cigarette and who was just scowling at him. And so he quickly pumped the gas and he got in his car and he began to drive off. And as they were driving down the road, he, he just had something stirring inside of him and he turned to his wife and he said, honey, uh, he said, I, I, I feel like God is telling us to go back and to share the gospel with that man that we saw at the gas station. But he clearly looks dangerous and uh, I'm, worried about, I'm worried about you, honey, and I'm worried about us. I don't, I don't know that we should go back. And his wife looked at him and she said these words. She said, I would rather be the widow of a martyr than the wife of a coward. And the man just went, Wah! and he... And it was crazy. He goes back to the gas station. This kind of story happens again and again and again in Islamic countries. He walks up to the man and the man said that he had a dream the night before. And in his dream, Jesus appeared to him and said, somebody is going to come and tell you about me. And then he told him about Jesus and this man's life was changed. And this isn't just true for Islamic nations. It is true in Los Angeles County. The Spirit of God is at work in all kinds of people's lives around us. So number one, we learn something here about the mission of God. But second, we learn something in this text about the effective messenger of God. You know, we, we can't build out everything it says here about Philip, but I just want you to note a couple of things that, that we need to note that he can teach us about our own role of bearing witness to Jesus. Notice that before Philip speaks, he first stops to listen. Notice what is it that he does when he, walk, when he goes over to the chariot. It says that he, he sat and he heard what the man was reading. 
He doesn't step into the chariot and say, hey, let me tell you a thing or two. He says, let me hear your story. Let me see what's going on in your life. What sources are you reading right now? What's going on with you? And it's out of that that he then asks, he asks him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? And he only responds to the man when the man is asking him questions. Second thing that we want to note, not only did he listen well, but secondly, he went into the chariot. You know, sometimes we think that, uh, you know, people are just going to show up in church. And, and we think, you know, if we just, you know, do the right thing, you know, in our worship services, you know, if we get the right kind of pastor, you know, the church is going to grow and people are going to get saved and all this stuff. But, 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 but listen, if we want to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ, we have got to go near them and get in the chariot. We've got to get proximate. You know, we've, we've got to be proximate to people who are hurting and who are in need. People who are addicted and dependent and despondent and depressed and disabled and incarcerated and excluded and neglected and poor and hungry. We have got to get near them. We have got to get into the chariot. And then after he hears and listens, after he goes near and gets proximate, I want you to see that he opens his mouth and he boldly tells this man about Jesus. And of course, this is our ultimate goal. It's not to tell people about first our politics or about all of our great ideas about the world or, or even about our moral standards, though that's important to do, of course. But our job is to point people first and foremost to Jesus. That is the witness of the church, is to be a messenger about the gospel of Jesus. And so we learn something in this story, number one, about the mission of God. God is on mission. We are invited to join him. Secondly, we, we learn something about those of us who are called to join him on this mission, to be messengers of God. We need to listen well. We need to go and get proximate. And we need to speak up about Jesus. But thirdly, we learn something in this story about God's mercy. We learn something here about the mercy of God. You know, listen. Again, at this point in the book of Acts, the gospel for the first time is traveling outside of kind of what felt comfortable for the Jewish first witnesses of the resurrection, the apostles and all the rest. They're there in Jerusalem and, and they kind of move out to Judea. And here, where it starts to go out to the, the Gentile nations, to the ends of the earth, where it's finally traveling outside of the boundaries to the first non-Jewish converts, it goes way, way, way outside the boundaries of normal society and even normal sexuality. And it encounters this man who is this Ethiopian eunuch and it invites him in. And I think what this story is telling us is simply this. There is a wideness to God's mercy. There is a wideness to God's mercy. 
You know, as the hymn says, there is a wideness to God's mercy. Like the wideness of the sea, there is a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner and more grace for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. There is a wideness to God's mercy. And let me just ask you, have you made it too narrow? You know, a while back, I was living in Albuquerque, and I remember in our house, we were having a fly problem, and it was because we had a dog in the backyard, and it was hot, and uh, I, I don't think cats attract flies, do they? That's why Jesus loves cats more than dogs. I'm just kidding. He really doesn't. I just had to say that for those of you who believe that false doctrine. But I had a conversation with my brother who told me about an electronic fly swatter that he had purchased at Walmart. And he said, it's awesome, you know, it's one of those things that you hold up and the fly comes and it goes and then it dies, you know, You've seen one of those. So I went and got one, I came back home and I was starting to work on the flies and it wasn't working because they actually have to touch, they have to fly to the thing and then, and then I started to like try to hit them with it and then the fly swatter broke and I was like, oh, this cheap thing, I'm gonna take it back to Walmart. So the next day, it was really hot. I was tired. I didn't sleep well the night before. I was incredibly cranky. And it was one of those days where you just, you sort of are operating with a low-grade disdain for the human race. <laughs> and when you're in that place, you don't want to go to the return line at Walmart. And, and I walked into Walmart and it was just flooded with people and everyone was in my way. And then the line was long and the checkers were moving like molasses. And I was just, I was just so full of self-righteousness and loathing and hatred of everyone there and the whole human race. And I felt like in, in that moment, I, I had one of these moments where I just felt like God spoke to me. And he just said, I love these people. God loves people. God loves all kinds of people. God loves liberal people and God loves conservative people. God loves gay people and God loves straight people. God loves black people and brown people and white people. God loves all kinds of people. God loves people who voted for someone different than you did in the last election. For God so loved the world. God is not like me. I, I love people who are like me, who think like me and dress like me and talk like me and vote like me. But God loves people who are broken and people who have made a, a mess of their lives and he wants to mend them. And God loves people who are stuck in their addictions and he wants to free them. And God loves people who are weighed down by their guilt and he wants to release that burden. And God loves people who are stuck in despair and he wants to restore hope. God loves all kinds of people. There is a wideness to God's mercy. Have you made it too narrow? It was St. Augustine who said, God, my heart is cramped. Widen it out. 
In the 1950s, a skinny preacher named David Wilkerson infiltrated a gang-controlled neighborhood on the streets of New York preaching the gospel. One of the most notorious and most feared gang leaders named Nicky Cruz, some of you read this years ago, a little book called The Cross and the Switchblade. It was one of the first and only books I, I read when I was young. But this guy, David Wilkerson, went to share the gospel with this hardened, very violent, angry gang member named Nicky Cruz. And as he approached the preacher one frightful day, he said, you come near me and I'll kill you. And Wilkerson replied, yeah, you could do that. You could cut me up in a thousand pieces and lay them on the street and every piece will still say, I love you. And it was that love that eventually brought Nikki Cruz to Jesus. Listen, it is the kindness and mercy of God that leads us to repentance. And it is the kindness and the mercy and the generosity and the hospitality and the love of God's people that ultimately will bear faithful witness to Jesus. You know, one more thing, and I'll just close with this. You know, the final question that this Ethiopian eunuch asked on that day is he said, what prevents me from getting baptized? And I would just ask some of you today, what prevents you from entrusting your life to Jesus? Now, I know some of you might say, well, I have doubts. Listen, I'm a pastor. I have doubts. Some of you say, but I'm not 100% sure. You know, what if this and what if that? And I, I, I'm just not sure. Look, there's almost nothing in this world that we have 100% certitude on. Yet you have to make a decision at some point. And I'll just bear witness as somebody who has entrusted his life to Jesus. When I was just a teenager, Jesus has never let me down. You know, I've had my doubts. I've had my questions. I, I've struggled, you know. I'm still a broken, fallen sinner to this day. And Jesus has never let me down. He has never let me down. You can entrust your life to Jesus. He is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you might fill us fresh today with your love. That your radical, that your powerful, that your healing love might flood our own needy, broken hearts. That all of those places in us where we are filled with self-doubt and sometimes self-loathing. God, I pray that you would break in and release us of our burdens afresh. God, that you would expose us, that you would reveal your grace to us afresh so that we might, in experiencing your grace and your mercy and your love, be witnesses of your grace and mercy and love to this world around us. Thank you.
And I pray for those who might be here with us in person or maybe watching online who've not yet made a commitment to you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.